I knew I was stepping into destiny in a way that I could not even explain for myself. I did not think it would become what it did. I did not think, oh, I'm going to be famous or I'm going to have a national talk show. Everybody knows that there's a time that comes in your life when where you are is no longer where you're supposed to be. And that is what I knew about Baltimore. Because for me, life has always been about growth. That was the voice of media magnet Oprah Winfrey in a new WBEZ podcast about her career making Oprah. This was year was the 30th anniversary of the beginning of Oprah's mega hit daytime talk show. And it's also the year that the Harpo Studio Building was torn down in Chicago to make way for a McDonald's headquarters. Oprah is still active as a media entity and still conducts interviews, but she's largely stepped out of the spotlight, which means it's not easy to track her down for an interview. When Jen White of WBEZ landed the interview with Oprah and flew out to Los Angeles to meet with her, Jen had this reaction. I've got to center, Jennifer. <laughs> center yourself. <laughs> I know that reaction was a bit much, but here's what you have to understand. I'm a 40-something-year-old black woman who spent her career working in the media. Oprah means a lot. That was Jen White. That was Jen White describing uh, her anticipation at meeting Oprah Winfrey for this new podcast at WBEZ in Chicago called Making Oprah. Jen White, uh, producer with WBEZ, joins me now to talk about her work. Jen, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks uh, for having me. Absolutely. It's nice to hear your voice. Same uh, here. Yes. Uh, so uh, I, I think this is a really interesting subject to tackle, especially in the city of Chicago. I lived in Chicago for a short time in the 1990s uh, when Oprah was uh, was at, at probably about the pinnacle of mm-hmm. uh, her, her popularity. And it's hard to explain, I think, to people who are not in Chicago just how big uh, her empire sort of was, just how big of an impression uh, she made, uh, not just nationally, but specifically in the city of Chicago. Yeah, you know, Oprah is one of those people who, when you think about Chicago and you think about people who made a mark on the city and who people associate with the city, Oprah is one of those people. She's she's at the top of the list. And I think the fact that she built a studio here that um, was a, a cornerstone of that neighborhood and really sort of revived that neighborhood, her impact on the city is lasting. I mean, they shut down Michigan Avenue <laughs> near the end of the run of the show for this flash mob with the Black Eyed Peas. You know, it was it was a remarkable um, scope of years when she basically started her media empire here in the city. Yeah, yeah, and that neighborhood that uh, she revived. It's called West Loop now, uh, and I know that before that was over there, before Harpo was over there, it really, it really wasn't called much of anything. I mean, West Loop was created really uh, by the idea of Harpo being over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, a pretty seedy area. I think that would be a fair yeah. description. Yeah. And um, when she built the studio, she talks about how there was really nothing. There was nothing there. There was like one little restaurant they could go to. And and once they moved in and, and built the studios, things began to come up around the studio. And it's still 
uh, an area that's thriving. Clearly, the McDonald's headquarters is going there now. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about these interviews that you had with with Oprah. Uh, I, I love that uh, you recorded your nervousness <laughs> when <laughs> right before you were going to do that. So that was a real wonderful thought to sort of preserve that. But I think anybody would be at least a little intimidated thinking about uh, interviewing uh, the person who we all know for the interviews that she did. I mean, that's what made Oprah Oprah was her ability to sort of connect with people on that couch, uh, on her set, on that television show, uh, and get people to open up in ways that uh, that they maybe hadn't before, at least in public. Uh, talk about how you got her to do that uh, for you. Well, I guess I could... I, I should first of all um, make sure it's clear that I did not book the interview. My producer, <laughs> Colin McNulty, right. um, who is just a, a fabulous producer, was very persistent. I think we benefited from the fact that we had so many people who call themselves the Harponians, the producers, the editors, um, the television executives, who were already participating in in the podcast. It's a it's a three hour documentary on the history of the show. So we were already gathering those stories. And that, I think, going to her and saying, hey, we, we have all of these people talking about the show, but it's not going to be a complete story without your voice, because this is so much of your story. So that really helped us um, book her. And I think going into the interview, it's really important. The way I approach it is is I go in with no expectations. You're talking about someone who's an iconic figure in popular culture. And so when you when you go in to talk to them, you can't carry that with you. I, I can't carry that with me. Right. She's someone I've followed for a long time, someone I grew up watching, but carrying all of that in the room with me prevents me from getting <laughs> the interview to having the conversation. Right. You can't be overwhelmed. <laughs> you can't be overwhelmed. And um, we were originally booked for 30 minutes with her and we were like, okay, great. 30 minutes. This is what we need to get. And about 45 minutes into that first conversation, her press person who was there with her said, you know, you have something else you have to go to. And she said, okay. And then she kept talking. So we ended up with about an hour and 15 minutes that first time. And then she said, I can see what you're trying to do and you're going to need more time. <laughs> so we actually ended up with another hour and 15 minutes or so um, with her at another time. So we ended up with two and a half hours of tape wow. with Oprah Winfrey. Wow. And it was a it was a really fascinating conversation. And she was transparent and um, gracious and shared a lot of what was happening personally for her while she was working on the show over those 25 years. And I, I, I think we got more than we expected. And when we were able to pair her her memories and her experience with those of the producers, the people who worked on the show, we ended up with a really, what I think is a really rich piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Jen White, a producer with uh, WBEZ in Chicago, and she is the host of a new podcast miniseries called Making Oprah. It takes a look at uh, how Oprah Winfrey became Oprah, this iconic figure that uh, nearly everyone in America knows uh, about and knows what she does and sort of uh, the things that uh, she has created. Uh, if you are traveling this holiday, for instance, uh, this podcast would make great car listening, for instance. <laughs> um, it does. Right. But you can also find it uh, wherever you find 
uh, podcast. Uh, Jen, I want to ask you about what you think made Oprah um, into Oprah. Uh, you know, you hear in the in the clip we played up front, you hear this uh, this apprehension almost when she talks about that time that she had in Baltimore uh, before she sort of blows up as as Oprah. This sort of self doubt. Uh, that that comes across there, I think, has a lot to do with who she was and where she came from. What what was it that allowed her to sort of either go around or over uh, those obstacles to sort of well to build uh, the the empire that she ended up building? So I would pin it down to two or three things. The first is that Oprah brought a unique energy to television. In the 1980s, um, when you think about television hosts at that time, they were predominantly white men. Yeah. And and this whole framework of having, you know, a host with a studio audience and talking to people and taking calls, that was that was a format um, that was really launched by Phil Donahue. So he was he was the standard in television at that point. When she came on the air, first as, in Chicago at least, as, as a host of a local television show called AM Chicago, she looked different right. than anyone else who yeah. was on the air at that point. She was a black woman. Um, she, was, she was overweight. Um, and that was a conversation she had with the TV executive who hired her. She said, are you sure you want to hire me for this job? I'm black. I'm overweight. He said, I know that. And so am I. A lot of Americans are. I don't want you to change anything. So I think part of it was that she brought to the air this authenticity. Um, she was just who she was. And she had this ability to talk to women specifically in a way that women connected with. Um, she shared her fears, her her concerns about her body, about her looks, about, you know, being in the dating world. And Oprah and her producers sort of brought the audience with them through their lived experiences. And, and that was how they programmed the show. What the producers and Oprah were living through, that's what they built the show around. Yeah. So I think that was part of it. But I think the other part that you, you have to um, make note of is that the Oprah Winfrey show launched and grew into this juggernaut at a time when the media landscape was very different. Um, the show was able to get 40 million viewers a week. That doesn't happen today. <laughs> Nobody has that now. <laughs> Nobody right? has that because of the way media has splintered. You have so many cable channels. You have YouTube channels. You have Netflix and streaming services it's, it's impossible to gather that many eyes at the same time every week. It just doesn't happen anymore. So she benefited from uh, the structure of the media landscape in the 80s and 90s. But you can't ignore the fact that she had this force of personality um, that women connected with, men yeah. as well. I've yeah. heard from as many men about the podcast as I have <laughs> women. And, and she made it okay to talk about certain things. She created this space where it was okay to talk about race and to talk about sexual identity and sexuality and to talk about difficult topics, you know, even beyond all the celebrity stuff. But she she created this space where people from different walks of life were able to come together and, and kind of talk stuff out. Yeah. And that wasn't happening in the same way yeah. in other places. Uh, the The appeal that she has across gender, across 
race across economic status, I imagine, um, there, there isn't anyone now who seems to, to be able to sort of carry that mantle. I mean, this really was lightning in a bottle and, and really was about her as opposed to uh, anything else. Yeah, and and it's something I get asked a lot, people wanting to understand what it is about her and how how to replicate it. <laughs> and I don't know that anyone has really come up with an, with an answer other than it was just her. There was something about her personality at that time and that media landscape and the fact that she did it before anyone else did. I mean, Phil Donahue, who was wonderful, we spoke to him for the podcast as well, and he's just a fascinating man and character. But he says Oprah came to television differently than he did. He he says she came fully realized. He describes how he sort of grew up on his show. Uh-huh. And there were a lot of things that he didn't understand or hadn't experienced growing up as a middle-class kid in Ohio. And Oprah brought her life experience with her to her show. She already understood certain things about the likely experiences of her audience. And so she was able to connect with them in a way, um, immediately connect with them in a way that he wasn't able to. He was he was learning along with his audience rather than bringing the audience along with him, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. so I think her bringing her experience to the air is, is part of what made her such a powerful figure. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jen White, a producer at WBEZ in Chicago, host of the Making Oprah podcast miniseries there. We're going to talk to her about moving from Detroit to Chicago, as Jen did recently. What are the differences between the cities? What are the similarities? Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today at 101.9 WDET in Detroit. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Jen White. She's a producer with WBEZ in Chicago and the host of a new podcast miniseries called Making Oprah, a look at Oprah Winfrey and the media magnet she became uh, over about 30 years. Uh, If you want to call and talk about your perceptions of Oprah, what do you think about uh, Oprah and who she became, what imprint she left on American culture? Uh, Give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, I will mention again that uh, making Oprah would be great listening if you are headed in uh, the car for a holiday trip this season. Uh, three hours it is, but uh, but every minute worth uh, worth listening to. Uh, Jen White, you moved recently from here in southeast Michigan to Chicago. Uh, you're a native of this area. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious about I, – I, I did the same thing about 25 – well, 30 years ago. Good grief. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, lived in Chicago for a time. It is a really different place than this, even though it's so close, even though they are both large cities. I'm curious about the things you've noticed uh, there that are similar to Detroit, similar to the things we face in southeast Michigan. 
and the things that are really different? Um, well, I can tell you one thing that isn't different, and that's the weather. Um, <laughs> I say the weather there is worse than it is here. <laughs> it has been brutally cold uh, these past few weeks, uh, but that's okay. I'm a Midwest girl, grew up in Detroit, so I know how to prepare for right. that. Um, I think like any big city, um, Chicago is facing its share of issues. Um, the rates of violence uh, have been reported heavily n- nationally. Um, Chicago is having a really high homicide rate this year. It's at 758, yeah. I believe, yeah. um, presently, and that's uh, over close to 500 in in the in 2015. So that's that's a big leap. Um, there's also a lot of concern about public schools and making sure kids have access to quality education. I think that's a story uh, Detroit shares. Um, there's also the concern about segregation yes. and the legacy of racial divide. And I think that's also a, a story Detroit and Chicago share. But the things that are concerning in both cities, um, while th- there are some similarities there, there are the, some of the same things that, that make me hopeful about Detroit make me hopeful for Chicago. And that's the people I see at the grassroots level doing the work, (laughs) being engaged, um, trying to invest in young people and to keep them invested in themselves, trying to stem the tide of violence and not not looking to, you know, foundations or, you know, the corporate community to support that work, just getting out and doing it. In yeah. Chicago, there's a really interesting story um, about a group of mothers who who claimed a corner in their neighborhood that was um, rife with violence and shootings. And, and these moms went out there and they started <laughs> playing music and barbecuing. And, and basically, they just claimed this space and said, we are going to have peace. On this corner. And those are the stories that don't get told about Chicago as often as they should. Those are the stories that don't get told about Detroit as often as they should. But the people who are committed, committed to making their cities safe and vibrant and and supporting those young people, that's something that I see in Detroit and Chicago and it's something that that makes me really hopeful for both places. Yeah. Uh, are, are there things that you're seeing there that we in Detroit, uh, g- given the, the monumental size and scale of our problems, and, and of course we're several decades behind Chicago uh, when, when it comes to certain kinds of uh, reinventions and redevelopment, uh, are there things there that you're seeing that you think – Wow, if we did that in Detroit, uh, that'd be a really good idea, or that might that might go really well. The one that comes to mind immediately is is public transportation, yeah. Stephen. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'll tell you. I mean, it. I mean, it's. A, but it's really a, it's really a game changer. Um, Chicago has a, a train system, a bus system. Mm-hmm. People use it. They travel from the neighborhoods, from the outer suburbs, and they're able to travel to jobs. You know, and in Detroit, it's something, I mean, I grew up riding the DOT, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it just seems like 
That infrastructure piece, that crucial element of public transportation that's reliable, and I'm not following you know, transportation in Detroit as closely as I used to, so I don't know if there have been major developments there. But I think just at a base level, having that infrastructure piece intact in Detroit for Detroiters could really be a game changer for the city. Yeah. And I'd love to hear from you. Is there Has there been development on that front? Well, I mean, we still are waiting for the debut of the light rail, which uh, mm-hmm. they have begun testing. Uh, for the first time in 60 years, you can actually see them uh, carting uh, streetcars down Woodward Avenue. And that that's a really interesting uh, sort of and heartwarming site. But the Regional Transit Authority uh, funding, which was on the ballot uh, November 8th, failed. It failed pretty narrowly, but uh, it did fail, which I think really sets us back in terms of building that transit network that, you know, that would matter to people the way it does in Chicago. You know, one of the things that I remember from from living in Chicago and, and using public transit was that everybody used it. This was not just, uh, it was not just something that poor people use mm-hmm. or people without cars. Uh, lots of people who probably own cars uh, choose instead to take public transit because it's more efficient, it's faster, it's you know it's it's certainly cheaper um, mm-hmm. than than driving, and that's one of the big differences here. I think we still in Detroit see public transit as something that poor people use and not uh, not others. I I would agree, and I think this may come across as being Pollyanna, but I think there is a power to riding on a train and being on a train with people who don't live in your neighborhood. People who you don't know, yeah. People who you don't know. Being on a train and seeing other neighborhoods. In our cars, we're so protected. (laughs) And we can (laughs) choose our routes (laughs) and isolate it. But there's some power in in just sharing a train. Commonality, yeah. Common Mm -hmm, experience. mm -hmm. All right. Jen White, producer with uh, WBEZ, native Detroiter, and host of the Making Oprah podcast miniseries. Thanks very much for being with us on Detroit Today. Stephen, thank you. Absolutely. You can find Making Oprah wherever you download podcasts. All right. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station. We'll see you tomorrow.